Hello, and welcome to Rethinking Legal Ops, a podcast by Speed Legal. I'm Ashwari Saxena, and here we talk to legal experts, industry leaders, and innovators about the many ways that legal tech is transforming the way we practice law. Today we have a wonderful guest with us, Mark Lauritsen. Mark is an expert in um, just law and technology and legal and, and legal tech enthusiasts as well. He's worked with Harvard. He's one of the people sort of spearleading the legal tech movement for a very, very long time. And it's, it's just such a pleasure to have you here with us, Mark, and just cannot wait to learn from all your insights from your years and years of experience working with law and, and technology. I'm very glad to be here. And um, just to kick things off, Mark, I would like to ask you to uh, sort of walk us through your um, your incredible you know career journey and you know how you ended up working with legal tech because you started working uh, you know with this the integration of law and technology uh, quite uh, quite early even before people were sort of thinking about legal tech. So I'd love to know about your journey. Sure. Yeah, I go way back. Um, like many of my fellow boomers, I've had a pretty meandering career. Um, I began life uh, after law school as a legal aid lawyer, uh, being a poverty lawyer low-income tenants and, and families in various kinds of housing and family disputes um, at a, a legal aid program in Worcester, Massachusetts. And uh, that was exciting, mostly repetitive routine work, uh, defending tenants against evictions, as I mentioned. And it got me thinking, how do I, how do we, how can we do this kind of service at scale? Um, I did have one, I inherited a national, a nationwide class action um, that was potentially affecting a lot of people, but uh, unfortunately, after arguing it in the First Circuit, we lost, and uh, I didn't uh, manage to get the Supreme Court to take it up. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so I did that for many years. I, I was recruited back to Harvard as a clinical teacher at the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau, so I got involved in legal education, found myself supervising students after only a couple of years of being in practice myself. Um, and uh, in the middle of that, I was pivoted away into technology. We had a large project called Project Pericles back in the mid 80s, uh, which was using mini computers to um, investigate how we can use technology to improve education and service. And that kind of spun me in my current trajectory. So um, I've gone off and uh, run a consulting company, done a couple startups, I'm back into teaching. So like I say, I've meandered around quite a bit, but it's all been around how can we improve uh, what lawyers do and what clients need through these amazing new technologies. That's wonderful. And when when you started working um, at at Harvard, sort of you know with the like uh, the the clinic there, what was uh, what was sort of the reaction that you heard from people about legal tech? Were people could people understand that you could use technology to do legal work at the time? And and how's that different from the attitude today? Surprisingly similar. I mean, I. I think people were, were quite receptive. They, they sort of expected, of course, we can do more with technology. But when it came to actually deploying it, people were going, well, I'm not so fast. You know, we like the way we're doing things already. And maybe this is going to commoditize uh, how we practice if we, we take too much of legal knowledge and try to put it into machines. So I think we, I, I got an early preview of the whole cluster of incentives and disincentives that are still with us today, whether you're talking you know, a commercial law firm or a law department or a nonprofit organization. Oh, 
And and speaking of nonprofit organizations, in the past, in, in this podcast, we've talked about you know legal tech being useful for businesses, for law firms, uh, for just like you know regular consumers. How do you think uh, legal tech can be impactful for nonprofit organizations? Yeah, I mean, on a couple of levels. One of just as a regular practicing law office, um, nonprofit programs like legal aid and courts and other similar organizations can take advantage of the, you know, the effectiveness, uh, skyrocketing power of tools like document automation and expert systems, just like a, a, a for-profit organization can. Uh, but they also have a larger remit. They're, they're really, um, most of these organizations have a genuine commitment to expanding access to justice, and they realize that they don't have the means themselves uh, to serve every client. As we know, in the United States uh, and many other countries, the vast majority of people with legal needs go entirely without any help. And so a lot of these organizations are thinking, how do we, how do we provide service at scale using machine-based tools? Uh, and that's been a big theme over the last couple of decades. Right. And, and you already touched upon this a little bit, but um, how exactly, you know, Patrick is saying, you know, um, nonprofit organizations provide better services to more people. Um, how, what are some other ways that legal tech can improve access to, to legal resources? I think um, taking advantage of the web. Again, this is old idea, but, you know, putting up content that's not simply static content, but interactive so that, uh, as a litigant or a, a person with a legal problem finds themselves unassisted by any humans, they can at least go to a, a online resource and be given guidance, given instruction, and increasingly actually taken through a customized interactive questionnaire and have documents generated for them. So we've seen over the last, again, two decades, an explosion of such services they're still only only touching a slight percentage of the people that need help, but uh, I think it's a move in the right direction. And that's one of the challenges: is how do how do we in fact deliver high quality assistance without a without a human in the loop, but do it at scale to to begin to crack the nut of this uh, access to justice gap. Mm-hmm. And 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 also like for uh, companies, and I'm assuming you know when they try to sort of go into that space where, I mean, there's chatbots, uh, other services that sort of, you know, like are providing access to resources to people who cannot maybe go to a lawyer. But one of the trepidations that I've heard you say, you know, talking to like, you know, co-founders and founders of these companies is that how do you escape the liability? Uh, because that's a pretty big sort of responsibility um, uh, to take. Have you seen those sort of challenges being faced by companies as well? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's one of the first questions. I mean, on two, at least two levels. One is, the liability for providing incomplete or, or inaccurate guidance. Uh, and number two, being vulnerable to challenges from the bar authorities about unauthorized practice. So those are pretty big disincentives. Uh, nonetheless, I think various services have surmounted them by, by carefully crafting terms of service uh, and understandings and, and, by, and by avoiding uh, the perception at least that they are actually uh, promoting a, 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 a trusting lawyer-client relationship, but rather simply providing information, albeit increasingly in, interactive and customized. Uh, so it, I think you're right. That is a, that's an obstacle, uh, but there are solutions, and I think many vendors have successfully uh, provided them. Some are more, you know, have been more targeted, like LegalZoom, 
uh, which has you know, sort of uh, been the pioneer uh, back down on the path in many ways with arrows in its back, but nonetheless has thrived and delivered a great, great amount of service to people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And then there's also like, you know, market marketplaces where you can you know, get access to um, different types of legal aid clinics and um, resources available to people. We've been doing some surveys at Speed Legal over the last, uh, last month, just about, um, you know, trying to understand how much do people even know about their rights and how yeah. aware people are of their resources available to them. And these are Berkeley students in sort of a position where, you know, if they wanted to seek out that information, it's pretty easily available. Uh, you're told, um, you're informed of some of the resources, like, you know, as part of orientation. And yet, like, we got about the 70%, over 70% response that I don't even know my rights and I don't know where to find resources. So that's the reason why I sometimes don't seek help. And uh, and that that was kind of alarming because this can happen to you know Berkeley students you know with access to n number of resources I cannot imagine what it's uh, you know like for someone that does not have access to that level of resources within like an institutional uh, you know within a university that is uh, provided to them as students. Exactly. And that's, yeah, that's just such, um, please go ahead. No, I'm just going to very much so. That's 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 a great observation. I think that's that's one of the other challenges we face is a is a largely uneducated constituency as to legal proceedings, the rights vocabulary, and yet a lot of these people uh, are forced to into the justice system without without any concept of how it works or how how they're going to manage it. Um, and from the court's perspective, it's it's a crisis. You know, 70, 80 percent of litigants in many practice areas come in unrepresented. The court feels obligated not to not to uh, advise them because uh, they don't want to engage in unauthorized practice themselves. But uh, really, it really slows down the process and and results in very suboptimal outcomes for most people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This semester at Berkeley, I also work. Uh, I also assist state professors in teaching some classes, and I'm working with this class called Intimate Partner Violence and the Law. Uh -huh. And yeah. um, you know the family, uh, the family court system. It's just uh, just the way the filings work, um, and just the way the the orders are, are passed, like on both sides, on like the judicial side, like you know, for the for the from like a state machinery perspective, it's it's extremely hard to you know, process all of these different types of cases. As you're seeing a lot of people not represented; they may not file things in the right format. And for the general like, people fighting these um, the, uh, in, in, in these courts, I mean, they're, they're facing crises, like they don't have access to resources, have never you know, been inside like, the court system before. So mm. this is you know, an issue that constantly comes up. And I was recently having a conversation with someone, they were talking about how like uh, the, the appellate uh, system with regards to like, you know, child custody, like if you have a restraining order, you do want to you know, challenge child custody, like that in itself uh, can take up to, you know, two years to even process um, the uh, process like a particular case. And then sometimes you have your doctor return in like 30, uh, in like 30 days to six months saying that you didn't file this one form correctly, or you didn't check this one box correctly. Um, and it, it just sounds um, so frustrating, such an important issue, but not not enough um, not enough resources to to fix that. So I'm sure there's some tech tool out there that can that can automate this process or optimize this process. But which leads me to my next question, Martin, which is like, what are according to you some of the most impactful legal tech tools today? 
Yeah, I mean, first of all, I wanted to react to, to what you were just saying about about students, and and sometimes they're they're really shocked once they find themselves either helping somebody else or, God forbid, finding themselves in the justice system. Uh, it's it's amazing how bad the system appears from the unrepresented litigant perspective. I know I I've spent time in the courts in California myself around some eviction defense uh, work we were doing, and it is it is frightening. Uh, how, how easily somebody can be derailed, again, by not knowing where to appear when, what form to, to submit, uh, and sometimes that can get you downstream. Uh, there is, uh, California, ironically, has, has one of the most advanced self-help center systems in, in the country, uh, and they make active use of technologies. To answer your second question, I think, again, it's an old tech, but it's, it's I, I think, increasingly powerful and relevant just interactive document automation uh, to generate the forms. I mean, in California, all of the all the court forms are available as PDFs. Some of them are, are fillable PDFs, um, but they lack the the um, the the accompanying information and guidance about how to fill out the form, and let alone how to create packages. So, one of the services that I am especially enthusiastic about is called Law Help Interactive, and it's used in California and other places. And again, it's you know, for a for a, uh, uh, a domestic violence situation, for an order of protection, they have they have interactive questionnaires and uh, uh, dynamic interviews that take a litigant or a helper of a litigant through the process of generating those paper, that paperwork so that it is properly filled out and they know where to file it. Obviously, it can't accompany the person to court, but it can save a lot of headache and heartache. Uh, by by generating context-specific documentation and guidance. Uh, so that's that's just one example. But I think that across the justice system, there are many, many opportunities to apply this quite old technology very effectively. And now there are dozens of vendors that are yeah. trying to do just that. Mm -hmm. Yes, indeed. I think Utah is, is a good good example, too, with the, the legal sandbox where like, these sort of vendors and tools do have some support from you know, the, the, the Bar Association and you know, the, the justice system as well. And um, I cannot agree more with, um, you know, like the fact that these solutions, you know, they seem so simple and it can be, you know, complicated to, to implement for you know, myriad reasons. And we'll get to that in just a second. But it reminds me of this TV show. It's a very famous Netflix TV show called The Maid. Um, have you seen it yet? No, I don't think so. The Maze? The maid, M-A-I-D. Yeah, I heard of it, but I have not seen it. Yeah, it's about, um, you know, this young woman, uh, she is going through the justice system, through the family court system in particular, mm. and, um, you know, she has, um, you know, she's in an abusive relationship and, uh, you know, wants to get sole custody of her of her child, and um, one of the times that she shows up in court, like, she's never really been inside a court before. She's never had to deal with any sort of authority or institution before. So uh, when she enters, you know, this courtroom and, um, you know, they start like, you know, the lawyers are just like talking to the judge that this motion was filed, you know, X, Y, Z. And at some oh, point yeah. they just switch to saying legal, 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 more legal. Uh, what do you think, Alex, legal? Uh, and then she's just standing there like, I don't understand any of this. This is only legal sure. jargon you've thrown at me. And of course, she freezes, and you know, um, the courts end up assigning uh, the custody of the child to the father because he has, you know, more financial resources. But she's not able to really explain her story because she doesn't understand. 
um, what's going mm. on. And I, I think that that is just, um, you know, shockingly and, and unfortunately very, very common within the court system. I guess it's not as shocking, but um, I guess if you're on the outside, it feels, you know, um, it, it's very, um, what's the right word for it? It's very like sort of, it's like a wake up call to, you know, see that happen on TV and just understand that maybe for us as lawyers, this is like a normal, you know, way to speak, but for most people, on this planet, it, it really, it really isn't. And uh, I think someone needs to fix that. We are talking about creating all these documentation. Um, <laughs> like clerks and all these courts are just too overworked. They're, you know, these um, these offices often like understaffed. They don't have time to even like you know, advise people who go with them, walk them through like how to find each document. And so many errors just keep happening. And, um, you know, it's, it's often that um, family disputes will get settled outside of court because people just find it easier to just have right. a conversation with each other and come to an understanding rather than go through the system. Now, I, I, I don't have the statistics to support this, but like this is what I've heard from just doing a lot of surveys and just, just talking to people. And I think that's that. That's not how things should be. Um, you know? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's an amazing, amazingly accurate description of the reality for many people. Um, I mean, the, you know, the legal mumbo jumbo that doesn't make any sense to them. They're, they're, they're thrown into a bunch of insiders, you know, clerks and lawyers and judges who frequently work with each other. Uh, uh, and then out of the blue comes this person who maybe has a one time or a few times interaction with the court system. And you can imagine for somebody with a, who's, for whom English is not even the first language, how much more difficult it is. Or who has other perceptual or emotional uh, difficulties trying to interact with this system that where their rights to custody or children of their, or their liberty or their housing is at stake, and yet they are almost utterly helpless. You just don't have enough lawyers, uh, even if they're willing to volunteer their time to deal with yeah. it. Exactly. And, and so what are, like, the, why is it so hard to bring more legal tech to, to courts? Uh, because every time I talk to entrepreneurs and I tell them, um, you know, like, um, would they consider you know, working within the state machinery and like working with the state departments, they are always a little bit like scared of that. I mean, there are companies that are, you know, of course, serving that purpose, but why is selling to uh, governments and government institutions so difficult? <laughs> I think selling to anybody is, is difficult. Lawyers, lawyers are especially resistant. And of course, many lawyers are in control in the court system. I mean, the courts have got their special challenges, obviously. Uh, they're trying to, you know, repair the engine while the plane is flying to some degree, right? So they've inherited a lot of legacy technology, case management systems and other systems. Uh, they're grossly underfunded in most jurisdictions. And, 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 they're, and they're populated by well-meaning staff who are just overwhelmed. Um, so when somebody shows up with a shiny new object saying, hey, here we go, we're going to solve your problems, they're, they're understandably uh, skeptical uh, and somewhat resistant. So I think, I mean, the strategy is, is, is small, small gains. Prove the concept in small ways and try, to, and try to accelerate progress by relying upon those small gains. But it's, it's a tough sell for courts and more generally for the legal sector. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and probably would also involve, you know, working sort of in a very hands-on type of approach where you slowly introduce like bits and pieces of the tool rather than like, oh, this is like completely new platform that you're now um, supposed to, to work on. And um, yeah, I, I think there's like some cool research happening in the user interfaces, like legal, legal design that could make this part yeah. easier. Yes. But um, 
the just the other day I was talking with a, you know a colleague about you know how frustrating it can be sometimes for me to switch between different types of um, you know like uh, writing tools. So um, um, I, I use Word a lot. I think that's a gold standard. <laughs> and there are times when I have to use Google Docs to work with you know certain uh, my colleagues and my colleagues in fact they they really like Google Docs. And sometimes I'm like oh no I don't know all the keyboard shortcuts. This is frustrating and that's just such a small thing. So I can totally understand completely shifting your context and using something new, which you're not sure may even work, uh, is is a is a difficult sell. But um, exactly. but I hope it is mostly it is mostly a cultural and emotional challenge, more so than a, a technical one, right? Uh, in many organizations, and and people get get uh, accustomed to, to how things work and the way things work, and they know their tools. They know their shortcuts to, to get things done in their case management system or or even their paper system and when you inject new technologies it's disruptive and and unpleasant at least at first for many people yeah, yeah, yeah. no absolutely i mean um, um you know but i think the pandemic has gotten the ball rolling on that um you know a lot sooner than maybe what we would have uh expected yeah. and uh um, I, what has been your experience in some of the way uh, technology is implemented? In the well, I think your point about the pandemic is a good one. It was, you know, one of the bright, uh, one of the bright aspects, one of the few bright aspects of it is just the ways in which it showed organizations, hey, we can change. You know, necessity is the mother of invention, and and courts in particular have discovered, well, I, you know, uh, remote hearings are not that crazy. And maybe maybe online tools uh, deserve a place in our in our repertoire. <laughs> um, so I think it re it reveals to us that change is possible, uh, and it's really the motivations uh, that need to be addressed. And uh, just telling somebody it's a good idea generally is not enough. They need to feel emotionally invested in in, in being part of the journey towards a new way of doing things. Absolutely. Yeah, I think you bring up a very important point there that just creating a shiny to shiny tool and just doing a you know quick demo, it, it's not enough. You really need to make people understand the impact you know them using that particular um, tool uh, tool might uh, might have. I mean, the reason why uh, I mean now I mean gas is very expensive, so people are thinking about EVs. But initially, like the biggest sell for EVs was like you know you're contributing to saving the planet by you know getting. This car or uh, those those like little like you know sustainability symbols that like brands have like oh this is you know cruelty free or this is um, you know this is environmentally friendly it's just that sort of validation for like customers to be like you know I was gonna buy a certain product anyway but I might as well like you know go with uh, something like this and, sim and similar for legal tech I mean the level of impact is so large I mean it's not mm -hmm. like it's just something make something makes your life easier but like it can be something that's largely uh, impactful. So I think that messaging around that and building those sort of relationships with um, potential clients is so, is so, so important. Um, uh, the uh, other thing that I've been sort of, you know, um, thinking about, Mark, is like, we've talked about uh, what, like, sort of tasks, you know, can be, can be good for automation and legal tech can be hopeful there. Are there any particular mm. um, areas of law that you see that legal tech can be particularly useful in? Um, I think I think it's universally useful. There are certain areas of practice that historically have been much more amenable. Uh, estate, estate planning, for instance, often is one of the forerunners in document automation because they're heavily invested in, in carefully crafted 
wills and trusts and, and other, other uh, instruments. Um, and most of that work is amenable to algorithmic treatment, uh, at least for first drafts. But almost all the transactional practice has got that capacity, you know, where you're doing routine work and you, you don't want to, you know, you're not going to hand over your job to the computer, but you can get it, you can get ahead of the process, maybe get 80% of the initial drafting done very quickly by interacting with a, with an intelligent tool. Uh, on the litigation side, I think there's often of, of uh, automatability as well. And so I think the main strategy is uh, across the entire spectrum of, of this, it's just sort of looking at your practice, what's the nature of the work I'm doing? Uh, how much of that work in fact is, is has got an underlying structure and, and replicability about it? Can I hand that off to a, a automated process, create myself as a practitioner, spend more time on the creative, human, interactive, strategic dimensions of practice? So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's possible everywhere, and and certain practice areas just historically have been more more pioneering in using it than others. Yeah, yeah absolutely, and and um, you know, I've also been wondering how much of um, because I, I'm one of the believers that like in order to make like sort of lasting change, uh, you know, it has to make um, although like you know, I would like it to be a little different, but it has to make like more economic sense, and I think for legal tech mm -hmm. as well. Some of this, uh, you know, adoption has been like you know, client-driven um, because um, I was talking with uh, a fintech um, GC, and he was telling me that like th there are still times where he prefers to just go meet people in person, but clients are saying no, just do a Zoom meeting. Like you know, we don't need to. You know, person mm -hmm. can save everyone's time, and you know, even for like law firms, like clients are coming in and asking, we don't want to go by the billable hour method anymore. Mm. You know, we want like a right. like a sort of like a fixed quote. Um, and, you know, you can use tools to automate some parts of the work because if you're not using any tools, we know you're going to take like 10 hours with just like job review. And that's yeah. like, I think, 15, um, how much is that? Um, yeah, in, in California, that could be hundreds of thousands of dollars and like big law uh, <laughs> prices. Uh, yeah. I think there's that, that element that's been encouraging as well. But yeah. personally for me, I want to see it happen more uh, sort of in like the the nonprofit world and sort of more like mm. you know expanding access to to legal uh, to legal resources without needing those level of you know significant financial um, incentives. I, I don't know what like the business models uh, for a lot of companies you know, like similar to LegalZoom would look like in order to truly revolutionize that. Uh, but happy uh, to see it. Um, you know, yeah. let, me, let me react to what you were saying there a bit. Uh, I think. You know, the billable hour, I mean, is often held up as one of the main obstacles to technology adoption, uh, which I think has got a, a ring of truth to it uh, because there's a natural, at least even subconscious disincentive to become more efficient if you're if you're billing by your time. Uh, but I think that that obstacle is dwarfed by so many other other resistance points in any organization. Uh, and, and the fact that in a nonprofit organization, which does not typically bill at all, and maybe not even track time, a lot of the same resistances show up. I think uh, there's, it goes back to this cultural kind of professional uh, resistance to having your, uh, your discrete, your specialized expertise somehow being replicated in a machine. And, and uh, I didn't go into law, I didn't go to law school to be sitting there pushing buttons and generating documents. I, I, I'm, I'm using my own 
uh, knowledge and expertise and highly nuanced uh, thinking to accomplish this. And I think that's, there's some element of truth to that as well. But the hybrid, the combination of the artificial and in, to me is the way forward. Yeah, no, I, I, I do fully, fully agree. And uh, it's very interesting that you bring up the point that like uh, nonprofits are not even using like the billable hour, but there is still some of like the uh, similar, uh, similar, similar resistance. And uh, I, I don't even think that you know legal tech is something that uh, should or you know even can entirely um, replace replace lawyers because some of the things, some of the way that we reason through issues. Uh, we analyze issues, what we're taught in law school. Um, I don't know, maybe at some point AI can become intelligent, but I don't think so any anytime soon or that, you know, that sort of reasoning skills should be given even to AI. I've been doing um, some, you know, just like some cursory reading in, you know, some of the risk factors of, of that as well. And that could be a whole different, uh, you know, sort of conversation because we don't know what, um, uh, you know, that sort of advanced artificial intelligence is, like, you know, moral values or, uh, what their sort of style of thinking could be and, you know, how they could replicate human reasoning. So I don't think that, that that's something that should like totally completely replace the legal profession. Uh, but yeah, that combination of, you know, human, uh, human function augmented and optimized by, by AI is sort of like, sort of my, my, uh, my dream and, you know, sort of like a future where, um, you know, if at some point you needed to go see a lawyer, you could do that, but uh, going to a lawyer or going through the legal system, court system should not be so intimidating for people that are just simply seeking, uh, you know, justice or some, some form of, uh, some form of basic remedy. That's the part that breaks my heart when people are like, you know, I would rather just, uh, you know, not, uh, not go get this remedy that I'm fully entitled to in any situation than, than go through um, that, that that whole uh, that whole system uh, reminds me of something that my grandfather my grandfather was an attorney as well oh. and he used to say um, jokingly um, that uh, may no one ever have to visit two people and those would be one a doctor and the second a lawyer <laughs> so, because if you're going to one of these two then like, you're in some form of trouble so like hopefully yeah. your life like you know you stay healthy and you stay out of any form of like legal trouble or yeah. having to seek a remedy because it's just a painful uh, exactly I mean, it's interesting because i you know as you know I, I do adjunct teaching and i've been teaching courses for many years uh in which students build apps as part of their 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 casework uh but increasingly my courses have become much more focused on the distinctively human uh, skills. Uh, and recently we had a doctor come uh, present to my class on, I do a course on decision-making, come and present a, a, a scenario of, of, of how you advise clients uh, or patients um, serious illnesses, maybe end-of-life decisions. And just reminding folks again that when you go to the doctor or you go to a lawyer, you're not generally a happy, not there for a good reason that you want to be there, right? Uh, and and the skills of, of, which I think is not replicable by computer in any time soon, the skills of counseling a human being who's facing a tough problem, whether it's in medicine or in law, uh, is, is an important thing that law students need to spend more time thinking about before they get out uh, into the profession. And uh, I'm not sure where I was going with that, but I, but I just wanted to riff on your point about the medical and the legal. Uh, and many professionals tend to get desensitized uh, to the, the, you know, the, the uh, situations in which their clients or patients find themselves. 
Yeah, yeah. In the court systems as well, I, I, I think, again, going back to the family court system, family law courts, mm -hmm. uh, the commissioners there, you know, tend to be extremely overworked. And like, you know, at some point, you're just going to get um, desensitized. I've read some studies about the, just the mental toll it takes to be an expert witness in these cases, to be oh, a commissioner in, this, yeah. in, these, in these cases. And, and that sort of burnout, like emotional you know, like mental burnout does, uh, does very much, um, very much happen. And then, so like when you see sort of cases which are not properly filed, just very likely to be like, you know, I don't, I don't care, like, you know, and it just uh, prolongs the process, you know, makes it very difficult for people um, on the outside while people on the inside are just struggling, uh, you know, just, it's not just as much, but like significantly. Um, mm -hmm. so yeah. And, and you know, I, I was you know reading also about your course. And it's so inspiring to hear that you actually make your students design. Um, you let them design these like apps as part of the course. Right. I think that's incredible. Uh, yeah. that you're doing that. Uh, do you? How much do you think you know legal tech and just technology in general should be part of uh, law school curriculum? I think it's inescapable. I mean, uh, it's so much part of current law practice and the legal sector in general, and it's increasingly becoming so I, I think we're in a we're in a century where the rise of of non-biological intelligence is probably the most significant one of the most significant developments so i think law schools have got a real duty um, to help students achieve a decent level of competency in the basic skills of using word in excel and and uh, upload other tools that they'll find in practice but increasingly getting them to think about the future you know how do we how can we take advantage of these emerging technologies, which is really where I try to focus? It's okay, guys. You you know you, we're not going to teach you uh, the the shortcuts for Word today, but we're going to have actually throw you into a platform and have you create an interactive application. And don't be afraid. Uh, none of these guys have done software before, but you can do it. You can you can express some of your expertise and and wrestle with this software, and that kind of a skill I think is also essential. So. I'm not alone, of course. There are dozens of folks now who are doing courses like this around the country at Berkeley, and I, I assume at Berkeley, certainly at Stanford and and uh, and other law schools. Uh, so it's a slowly growing movement. <laughs> uh, but to me, it, it to me it's it becomes a, a a prism through which not only to learn about what technology can do, but to re-examine totally non-technological legal skills. Uh, interviewing, counseling, argumentation, drafting. How do we do these historical legal jobs more effectively and how to be a lawyer by teach machines how to think like lawyers? That's one of my mantras. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's that's wonderful and, and such a great opportunity for students to make, really think outside um, of the box. Um, at, at Berkeley, we do have sort of similar courses, like they're teaching like coding for lawyers, so like very, very basic Python. Um, and and yeah. they, they have like you know, some simulations where you can come up with like, you know, entrepreneurial um, ideas yeah. because um, it's, it's just so important to get lawyers to like understand that you don't just, there's not just two routes, which is like, you know, big law or like in-house, or like maybe you could go to nonprofit, but there yeah. are so many, like, you know, there's a sea of opportunities if you really sort of get people to look, you know, beyond what sort of uh, the very laser focus is for people like when they are uh, when they are in law school. And then I, I, I think part of the reason why like people are reluctant to take up these sort of, you know, sort of 
technically risky-ish, you know, ventures just go become an entrepreneur. I think it's law school is very expensive and the debt. But that could be a whole different topic for <laughs> another day. When I moved here and I learned how expensive law school is, it costs about 150k. I was like, yeah, yeah, no wonder. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Yeah, and the, and the and the bar and the bar exam—that's a whole other topic. I mean, the way in which we judge competency and the amount of energy and money being spent simply to pass the bar uh, in order to be able to practice when there's such a, a dramatic need for legal talent. Um, yeah. on, on the positive side, we're we're in an in an age of blue oceans, right? There are plenty of entrepreneurial opp opportunities, whether it's in-house or or just totally free, uh, and. I think a lot of our job as educators is trying to inspire the next generation to think beyond, you know, the, the traditional uh, career paths to do something uh, totally different and awe-inspiring. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, and that's what really, uh, personally, that's what really drives me because when I was in law school, I didn't, I, I saw nothing wrong with those traditional paths, but I just didn't see myself in them and just the type of, um, exposure i got to uh you know the different professors and students and like at berkeley and like it's just an entrepreneurial spirit it helped me understand that there's just this whole other opportunity i mean lawyers can be content creators it could be you know um entrepreneurs it could be like project develop uh, product development people it could be mm -hmm. legal solutions engineer which is my favorite combination of three words <laughs> i think wonderful yeah. like legal solutions architect Things mm. like that, and it just um, it gives me so much hope and makes me uh, makes me so uh, so so excited for you know what uh, the next uh, next ten years in the digital transformation of law are going to are going to look like, and I'm very grateful to be able to sort of witness it uh, from where, where where I am. Me too. Yeah, I'm hoping to hang around for a good good while longer. I spent a lot of years seeing this come and go, and and it, it's sometimes hard to maintain your your optimism after you see so many great ideas, you know, burn out. But <laughs> but I do. My basic instinct is we're at the we're at the edge of a real transformation of how law is done, and it's it's an exciting time to be present to be either a law student or a superannuated law student like me, and uh, a lot to learn and a lot to accomplish uh, yet. And, and, you know, on that note, thank you so much, Mark, for this wonderful conversation. I learned so much and, uh, you know, it's, it's so, it's so important, like the insights you brought in sort of comparing the, the, some of the resistance that existed when you started out with like, you know, law and technology to now, like some of that is similar, really just boils down to like, you know, like social and like cultural, like, emotional, like, you know, maybe um, associations, I think with technology and that is, so much to think about and um, I'm sure our listeners have, have learned a lot. So thank you very much for this conversation. You're very welcome. My pleasure. And thank you again to our listeners for tuning in every Thursday. We'll, we'll be here next week again with another wonderful speaker. Uh, so keep the momentum going, keep learning more about legal tech and uh, keep educating more people about about legal tech. And as Mark said, we are, we are at the edge of the real transformation. So. It's exciting. The practice of law is changing and we're here for it. Thank you so much for tuning in for today's episode of Rethinking Legal Ops. Follow us for more such insightful conversations about the transformative impact of legal tech. 
Also, follow Speed Legal and let us know in your comments and messages about how you leverage legal tech solutions to make your work more efficient. See you next time.